If you could ask the Lord for just one thing, what would it be? Just one thing to ask of the Lord, what would it be? Solomon famously asked the Lord for wisdom. But his father, King David, a man after God's own heart, asked the Lord for one thing in Psalm 27, 4. It wasn't for good health. It wasn't for stability of the kingdom. It wasn't even for peace from all of his enemies. It was to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is what David says, and really it's a prayer. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This morning I want to give one warning. Two echoes of a voice, two applicational questions. Let me explain. First, the warning. We live today in a very utilitarian society. Now, the Internet, in all of its wisdom, has defined utilitarian as designed to be useful or practical rather than attractive. Utilitarian, designed to be useful or practical rather than attractive. And so this morning I want to ask you, just as I've asked my own self during this last week, what happens when we approach God as primarily useful or practical rather than attractive and beautiful? One of the things that happens is a Time Magazine article back in 2006, on the prosperity gospel. Time surveyed Christians of all stripes and all colors and found that 43% of all Christians agreed that the faithful receive health and wealth. 43%. That two-thirds agreed that God wants to prosper people. And that 31% agree that God increases the riches of those who give. If we'd only known this before the capital campaign, right? We'd be doing even better, right? And that 17% of all Christians identified, surveyed, identified themselves with the prosperity gospel, also called the name it and claim it movement. 20 years ago, You thought they were a bunch of fringe preachers out on the edges of Christianity, sort of crazy types. Now, almost one out of every five Christians in America identifies themselves with the prosperity gospel, with the name it and claim it movement. American Christianity has been exporting this junk all over the world. A Pew survey found that three out of every four Latinos across all denominations agreed with the following statement. God will grant financial success and good health to all believers who have enough, what? Faith. So popular teachers like Joel Osteen, 
Joyce Meyer, Creflor Dollar will encourage you to say, I am blessed. I am prosperous. I am healthy. I am victorious. I have the abundant life. And they will tell you to claim all that by faith. So faith, what does faith become? Well, faith becomes like a magic wand that you wave over your life to give you the one thing you most want from the Lord. What does God become? Well, God becomes a means to an end. Can you imagine treating God as a means to something greater? God is perceived, my friends, to be very useful and very practical in our day and age. This is utilitarian thinking that is actually slowly but surely twisting the very nature and the very character of God. This doctrine, the prosperity gospel that is actually coming home to roost in many churches, many evangelical churches of all stripes and of all sizes. And if you don't think you can drive five minutes or ten minutes from this very campus and find multiple churches preaching prosperity gospel themes, then you are sadly, sadly mistaken. But this utilitarian thinking that distorts the nature of God, get this, can never truly pray like David prayed. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David's prayer is a prayer for the one thing that he asks, that he prioritizes, is for a vision, a sustained vision of the beauty of the Lord. Because a beauty that awakens joy. It's a beauty that is ravished by desire in our Christian life. A beauty that sees God not as a means to an end, but God as the ultimate prize and the ultimate end for all of our Christian lives. Herman Bavnik said this. He said, the pinnacle of beauty, the beauty toward which all his creatures point, is God. He is supreme being, Supreme truth, supreme goodness, and also the apex of unchanging beauty. The beauty of God is like the outward reflection of the glory of God. And often we are given just tiny refractions of God's beauty. N.T. Wright has a great image. He says that when we encounter beauty in our world, it's like an echo of a voice, like an echo of a voice. When you see beauty in the natural world, it's often like the echo of God's voice. Let me paint you three pictures from my own life this morning. 14 years ago, my wife and I were in Costa Rica. My eldest son had just been born in a hospital in San Jose, Costa Rica. And a few months after our birth, his birth, we had one of those packs, you know, that little young fathers have, you know, Kenyon's riding very comfortably in this, this pack. Of course, I'm sweating to death. We're outside, but we're on this trail, you know, halfway up a mountain and we're going uh, one after another, five or six beautiful waterfalls. The water is cascading down into these ponds. The rocks are beautiful. I look up and it's a beautiful blue sky. In the distance, 
in this park, there's actually this amazing butterfly garden where you can see the most beautiful, hugest, bright blue butterflies ever imaginable. And so I'm surrounded by beauty on all sides. But it's not only the beauty of creation. I could see just a little bit uh, just ahead of me walking is my beautiful wife with her big smile. She'd just given birth to my first son. And then I look down and I see this big, fat, but beautiful baby boy. And so even today, I can put my mind 14 years ago and I can draw myself back filled with such beauty. And it was an echo of a voice. Second image, I'm 20 years old this time in Colorado in the Rockies. Now I've climbed with my skis on my shoulder for about an hour. It was a seldom used wilderness trail off the beaten path. You hiked up and you hiked out. No one was uh, going, no chairlift was going to the top of this ridge. But yet, since it had snowed all night, we had about 12 to 18 inches of fresh powder. And no one, I mean no one, had touched this part of the mountain. And as my friend and I just sat and uh, breathed heavily, we also sat and just took in the whole ridge as far as you could see. No people present, just beauty and trees and snow. We took in this incredible snowy silence. It was so beautiful. And it was the echo of a voice. Third image, this time at the top of another ridge, but this time in a national park in Equatorial Guinea in Central Africa. And as I had hiked up for four or five hours that morning, finally our group sat in silence over this crest, howler monkeys in the background barking for us. But out front, just a canopy as far as the eye could see, pure an adulterated jungle and forest, just like the ocean, spreading as far as you could see. And you wonder what kind of animals, what kind of wildlife, how many elephants were under this treetop as you looked and just saw vibrant green as far as you could see. And it was beautiful. And it was the echo of a voice. Psalmist puts it like this in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And you also, I know that you watching at home, you here in the sanctuary, you could also tell me three portraits of beauty from your travels and you wouldn't even have to go far from this very place from beautiful birds in flight to sea turtles giving birth on our beaches to spectacular waves crashing just right on the ocean to beautiful sun rises and sunsets you know who are now helped by this huge saharan dust cloud right over all our state is that arrived yet that's arrived it's a beautiful sunset you can hear also echoes of a voice all around us if we open our eyes and see, if we open our ears 
to hear. Beauty that is refracted by the beautiful one in our creation. Beauty in nature is the external manifestation of the glory of God. John Calvin said it like this. The world was founded for this purpose. That it should be the, the sphere of divine glory. Calvin often called nature the theater of the glory of God. And so the question is, what does God want to you to look at? When he gives you the front row seat on the most beautiful uh, 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 theater in the history of the world. He wants you to look beyond the actors on the stage. He wants you to look beyond the, 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 the equipment on the stage to look behind and above to the playwright who is the beautiful one in all his beauty. So the first echo of a voice points to the beauty of God is actually the creation, the handiwork of God that showcases his beauty. The second echo of a voice that points to the beauty of the Lord is found in marriage. Did you know that what group in the church was probably loved to preach on the Song of Psalms more than any other group? It might surprise you. It was our own Puritans of New England. The Puritans were enchanted with the book, the Song of Solomons, for the way in which it awakened desire in our souls and in our bodies, which then point beyond itself to the beauty of the Lord. If you were a young Jewish person during the time of Jesus, you were actually forbidden until you're 30 years of age to read the Song of Solomons. I'll let you guess why uh, in your own uh, ride home today. But it awakens desires. It awakens affections. One writer says it like this. One of the most striking phenomena about the New England Puritans is that their greatest ministers and their greatest governors loved their wives beyond measure. They looked on them as, quote, earthly representatives of God's beauty. Now, I don't even know any feminists who wouldn't blush if their husband looked at them as an earthly representative of God's beauty. Can I get an amen? John Cotton, a famous Puritan preacher, frequently had to remind husbands and wives who were so, quote, transported with affection that they ran the risk of, quote, aiming at no higher end than marriage itself. Such was the great affection during this era. Today, when we pastors preach on marriage, what we mostly say is don't yell so much at your spouse, right? How times have changed. But such was the sweetness and the affection and indeed the desire experienced between husband and wife in the Puritan era. Puritan love letters between husbands and wives were careful to remind each other that it was from their heavenly husband, the Lord, that they should draw their deepest love. And so you should ask your pastor, well, how did romance go in your home this week? You're reading all these Puritan beauty and the desire and the affections. Well, you have to ask Lisa that, right? But God's gift of beauty, God's gift of desire, God's gift of affection and marriage for the Puritans was thought to be a foretaste of the heavenly banquet when we shall see God face to face and look upon his beauty to be ravished by divine 
delight, to be mesmerized by heavenly affections of the Lamb. That was the symbol of which marriage was a great illustration of the beauty that pointed away to the Lord. So I ask you, after hearing all that, is it still the case that the Puritans were simply prudish? That's basically a sophomoric understanding of the Puritans. Bilden Lane says it like this, All of this makes it clear then why the Puritans had to be so careful in cautioning themselves about the danger of sexual sins. It wasn't that they were sexually repressed, straight-laced prudes, eager to put a bright red A on the dress of every Hester Prynne in the colonies. For they simply had a spirituality which fostered so much interior passion. Do you get that? They had a spirituality that fostered so much interior passion that setting appropriate boundaries for their exterior behavior was absolutely necessary. And so there may have never been a group of Christians in the history of the church that loved to meditate and preach upon passages like the Song of Solomon in chapter 4 of the Song of Solomon. If you have your Bible, turn with me to this passage. And uh, I'm glad that my kids aren't here when I start reading again like they were in the previous service. The caption, Song of Solomon, chapter 4, in my Bible says, Solomon admires his bride's beauty. And this is what he says. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So if you have a spouse here, men, I want you to turn to your spouse and tell her your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of of Gilead, even if she has short hair, her her hair can still leap down from Gilead. <clears throat> then he says, "Your teeth are like the flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing." In other words, you got all the gunk out of your teeth. You, they've come up; they're like a, a shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. Nothing I see, the, you know, the green salad. Nothing I see; it's just pure white there. All of which bears twins. Not one of them has lost its young. In other words, <clears throat> Solomon is saying, you're so beautiful, honey. You don't have any gap teeth. Each one bears a twin. There's no spaces like for those other women. You, my love, are beautiful. He keeps going. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your mask, I mean, behind your veil, veil. And I, could, I don't see many cheeks here, but just hearing this, and if your husband is slowly whispering these sweet nothings in your ear, I can imagine some pomegranate cheeks developing for our women right here today. <clears throat> Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that gaze among the lilies. Now, what am I to say about that? I like to keep my job. So I'm just going to go to verse six, just going to move right on from verse five. You can uh, say that later on your drive home, men. 
Verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. And so there you have it. This is also an echo of a voice. It's an echo that points away from itself, away from marriage, even away from the marriage bed to the beauty of the Lord. Paul could write in Ephesians chapter 5, 31 and 32, Therefore a man shall leave his mother, his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But then Paul goes on and he says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's a sense that becoming one flesh points beyond itself to this intimacy, this union that is experienced between Christ and his bride, between Christ and the church. And so the danger of utilitarian thinking as it comes into the church during our day and age is that God is to be worshipped not only for being practical and not primarily for being useful has crept in on the church today so we can scarcely meditate on the beauty of the Lord. We can scarcely say with David one thing. One thing only do I ask of the Lord to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Two applicational questions. The first is this. Why is it so important that you recognize the beauty of the Lord? Well, the institution of marriage and the creation as a theater of the glory of God are meant to be a training ground in the learning of affection. A training ground in the awakening of Desire. I love what Belden Lane says. He says, Calvin knew that desire is the great teacher and sustained desire the path to holiness. You could take Calvin out of that sentence. You could put biblical thought theology would still make great sense. Biblical theology knows that desire is the great teacher and that sustained desire the path to holiness. Macarius, the Syrian in the fourth century, says this, the soul is accepted not because of what it has done, but because of what it has desired. The soul is accepted not because of what it has done, but because of what it has desired. And so God gives us these two great echoes of a voice that awaken desire, the beauty of nature and the beauty of Marriage and people who are called to be single. Singlehood is also a training in holy desires. Nature and marriage in their best forms naturally call forth enjoyment. What was my response to be at the top of that ledge in the Colorado mountains? It was to enjoy, to find joy in the beauty of Creations, desires that set their gaze on the beauty of the Lord as all fulfilling. So nature and marriage point beyond themselves to the beauty of the Lord. And so if you want to walk with God, hear this. If you want to grow in the Christian life, if you want to live a life of holiness, practice the cultivation of godly 
desires, desires that set their gaze on the beauty of the Lord as all fulfilling. So God has given to you nature, the theater of the glory of God. He's given to many of you marriage in order to awaken in you a desire and affection for him, the supremely beautiful one. And so I ask you today, how strong is your appetite for the beauty of the Lord? How strong is your appetite for the beauty of God? When a man or woman is in the hospital and has no appetite, you rightly assume, do you not, that he or she is not feeling well, that he or she is not doing good. We could put the same spiritual thermometer inside each of our souls. And I could ask myself, Jason, what is my temperature? What is your temperature? What is my appetite for the beauty of God that awakens in me holy passions? Church, take your temperature today. How strong is your appetite for the Lord? And second, we could ask the question, how? How does God persuade you? How does God convince you and enlighten you about who He is? Well, a few weeks ago, we talked about God's sovereign power. And it's true, He could use His omnipotence and His power, persuading us by mastering us, ruling over us, and uh, subduing us with His superior might and force. God could browbeat each and every one of us into submission that so we followed all of His ways. We followed all of His laws. But I ask you, is that how God works? Is that how God works? Or is there something about God that is intrinsically and inherently beautiful and attractive to our souls? Psalm 50 verse 2 says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing upon earth that I desire besides you. We could ask what the greatest blessing of the heavenly city will be when we see God face to face. All the beauty of the new Jerusalem streets painted with gold. But isn't the greatest, most beautiful image in Revelation 22, verse 4, And they shall see His face. There is something in God. There is something about God that conquers us. And it's not always His sheer force and power. But it's about the beauty of the Lord. Let's pray.